to another episode of Questions with Crocker with me, Dr. Crocker, and I have a guest today. I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Alex Sigmund, and you are a veterinary ophthalmologist, correct? That is correct, yes. <laughs> so you deal with eyes all day long. Uh, you love eyes, which I will say, God bless you, because <laughs> people like me <laughs> who know not what to do after the initial uh, issue are so happy we can send patients to you and you can work them up more thoroughly um, and provide more in-depth care for our pet patients. So tell me a little bit about how you became a veterinary ophthalmologist and also what type of animals you actually see and work on. Yeah, good questions. Um, the most straightforward answer is after you finish vet school, I did a rotating internship at the University of Tennessee. I then did a specialty ophthalmology internship for a year down with Blue Pearl in Tampa. And then I went back to the University of Tennessee for a three-year residency. So that was five years after graduating vet school and then went out into practice after that. Um, so it's a it's kind of a long road, <laughs> but uh, it's been worth it. It's a very long road. And I... I tell students all the time, you know, who are telling me like, I think I want to be this specialist. I think I want to be that. I'm like, that better be 110% the only thing you want to do because you spend so much time getting to that point. And so you want to make sure like the only thing that you ever want to do for the rest of your career is that because I can't imagine spending nine years doing that 10 years and then deciding to go a different direction. Yep. Um, and this is a podcast based off of questions, and we had a lot sent in. Uh, but a lot of people wanted to know like, how you set yourself up for success, how competitive is it to become an ophthalmologist? So I'll let you finish your story, but if you can touch on that, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so your second question was like, what kind of animals do I usually see? And definitely it kind of de it depends on your practice. So my practice is really only set up to see cats and dogs. Um, in residency, we get to see pretty much any type of animal that comes into the hospital. So I was looking at sloths and eagles and tigers and I mean, all kinds of things, which was really cool. It's one of my favorite things about this job is that I can, I do have the ability to look at other animal species, um, in private practice or in corporate practice that I'm in now. Um, I do have some relationships with our local zoo and aquarium. So I've been able to at least get some of my exotics in um, looking, uh, looking at them if they need that. So you kind of can tailor a little bit and then there are ophthalmologists who only do equine. Uh, so you really can <clears throat> kind of tailor it to what you like to do. I did equine initially. Right. And I will tell you, you know, there's a few equine issues and then the rest of the time we're like, we'll just take the eye out. I mean, like it was very, <laughs> it was, I think it, it was a little more minimal than probably what you do, you know, at a higher level with small animals. Um, so I think it's, nice to know the degrees of care, I guess we can offer our pet patients. Um, I know that ophthalmologists do cataract surgeries. Um, you post a lot of amazing cases on your social media. Uh, you guys should definitely follow him uh, on Instagram. Tell him what your handle is. It is the vet eye guy. I mean, uh, that makes Instagram. sense. That, that eye guy. <laughs> yep, that's me. <laughs> very, uh, very catchy. Uh, I thought so, you know, <laughs> but, uh, then as far as kind of competitiveness for ophthalmology and kind of how I prepared myself, I was kind of a little late to the game, I'll be honest, where I didn't know if I, that I wanted to be an ophthalmologist until my fourth year of vet school when I was rotating through the ophthalmology service and I got to see cataract surgery. And I thought that was the coolest thing that I'd ever seen. And I wanted to, I knew I had to do that and I had to do whatever it took to do that. And then I kind of quickly learned that it is very competitive to get an ophthalmology residency. 
I think the first year that I applied, because I did not get it my first year, but the first year I applied, <clears throat> excuse me, I think there were nine slots available and there were over 60 to 70 applicants that year. Uh, so you really have to be dedicated to trying again. And so luckily I did, and I got it a second time. Um, a lot of preparing yourself for residency uh, or to get a residency is the relationships that you form. So you need to know an ophthalmologist and ophthalmologist needs to know you well so they can advocate for you. Uh, because kind of unfortunately, if the ophthalmology world doesn't know who you are, you're not going to get a residency um, because a lot of it is relationship based. But otherwise, of course, research is always helpful, especially in the ophthalmology field. If you're a rotating intern, definitely uh, you know, make a relationship with your ophthalmologist that should be there. Because if you want to do ophthalmology, you need a, you need a rotating internship with an ophthalmologist yeah. <laughs> uh, and trying to get into some retrospective study that you can finish within that one year. So there's a lot you can do, um, but some of it is just based off of relationships. I think that that in general is important in our career. I tell people all the time that I really feel like just even as a general practitioner, ER doctor, I can teach you a lot of the medicine. I can teach you surgery. I can't teach you how to talk to people. Uh, I can't teach you how to be a good person, how to be a team player. So if I'm looking to hire, I'm actually looking more for like, who are you? What do people say about you? What do people think about you? And not like, are you the smartest person in the, in the room? Because all of us got into vet school. Mm -hmm. All of us are very capable and are intelligent, right? And so I like that, you know, I think the networking is a huge component of opening doors in this profession in general, but that's a whole nother podcast. It is. <laughs> I'm happy so to talk about that go, at a later one. <laughs> yeah, we won't go down that, but okay. So the way that this podcast is structured, it's called questions with Crocker because basically people send me questions and we answer them. Usually it's with my husband, but I have you today. And so we have all eye questions. <laughs> Perfect. So excited. And I got them from veterinary professionals, vet students, and also pet owners. So huge degree. And just to let everyone know, he is not prepped on the questions. He does not know what they are. Nope. <laughs> I, I just wanted to come into this like <laughs> supernatural um, and just hear what you had to say and, you know, hopefully educate people a little bit more on like what you do as an ophthalmologist, but also help us as veterinarians do better for our pet patients um, and their eyes. So we're going to get started. Um, so the first question, and this one's pretty simple, um, but at Shay Poindexter wanted to know, can dogs get pink eye? So it's interesting that, uh, so short answer is no, uh, because pink eye. He did air quotes. Yeah. That was air quotes that he did. If you're not watching yeah. YouTube, there was air quotes from the no. You should tune into YouTube for entertaining yes. facial expression. Um, so Pink eye in human medicine is a bacterial conjunctivitis, and dogs and cats rarely get bacterial conjunctivitis. Uh, conjunctivitis in cats is primarily viral, and conjunctivitis in dogs is usually secondary to something else, like dry eye, um, glaucoma, allergies is a very common one these days, especially down here in the South, because I'm down here in Georgia. Um, but as far as a true pink eye that's bacterial, that's uncommon. Okay. So just for me and my knowledge... If a pet comes in showing eye, signs of conjunctivitis, which is kind of the tissues around the eye being really inflamed, maybe having like drainage discharge, I'm going to probably work them up for other causes before I just assume that it's a bacterial issue. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that kind of leads me into the next question, which I actually had several people ask this question in different ways. So we will um, go with just one of them. Basically, they wanted to know, at Shelby Stevens wanted to know, what is the recommended treatment for adult and senior cats with chronic ocular discharge? Um, And a lot of people wanted to know what I do about my cats having chronic eye issues. Um, So let's speak to that a little bit. I think it kind of goes back to you saying conjunctivitis is more viral in cats, um, but let's expand on that a little bit more. Sure. So definitely when I get an older patient that's coming in uh, with tearing conjunctivitis, you know, swollen eyes, uh, squinting, uh, the first thing I think about is conjunctivitis with uh, from herpes virus. Um, herpes virus is just over ninety three percent of the world's cats have herpes virus, whether they show wow. <clears throat> whether they show signs of it or not. Uh, our testing for herpes virus is not that accurate. So if you get a, a negative on one of those upper respiratory panels, that doesn't mean they don't have herpes virus. It just means they're not maybe not shedding virus at that moment. So I rarely test uh, cats because. Um, it, it just, I can't really trust a negative, And that's kind of the whole reason that we would need it. And a positive could be positive in any cat. Um, they may be subclinically shedding at that time. So it's hard to know what exactly the cause is. So I just don't want to spend 300 and something dollars on a respiratory panel. I don't have to. <laughs> um, yes, word, word to that. <laughs> so if they don't have an ulcer, you know, I don't see um, any corneal like infiltrates that could indicate some autoimmune diseases. Uh, if I see keratitis at all, um, it's pretty much herpes virus until proven otherwise. So that's corneal blood vessels. Um, if it is just conjunctivitis, then technically herpes virus is like my top three. But then the next two are chlamydia and mycoplasma. <laughs> so Your top three. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, so it is kind of a trial and error where if they have... So chlamydia typically is going to cause raging conjunctivitis, like huge swollen conjunctivitis. That is probably has a chlamydia component to it, and you need something like teramycin and doxycycline. Um, but for just kind of a mild conjunctivitis, uh, definitely really look for those blood vessels in the cornea because that is going to be a hallmark for herpes virus where you need an antiviral like oral famcyclovir or a topical compounded antiviral like sidofovir, idoxuridine. So you're saying an antiviral eye drop? <clears throat> yes. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know that I've really used one that much um, in cats. So number one, it's not a curable thing, correct? Correct. Like you always, they're always going to have herpes virus. I think that's always important to set the expectation with pet owners. Like we can help these flare ups uh, essentially, but we're probably not going to get rid of this. Um, And then the other thing would be, I think a lot of us have lysine in our practices Mm. and we (laughs) talked about using that with herpes. So I don't know if that's, this is like a controversial optimal. Oh, okay. I like a little controversy. Yeah. Um, tell me about lysine uh, in herpes cats. What are your thoughts and feelings on that? So there are a lot of varying opinions. Well, I guess there's two very, three varying opinions. One, people think that it works. People who think that it doesn't. And then people who are like, well, it's not going to hurt. So you might as well try it. Right. Um, right. I would say our most recent literature, uh, where they've done like in vitro studies of um, herpes virus in combination with lysine concentrations, have found that lysine does not inhibit herpes virus replication, which is the whole goal. Because I don't know if we want to get all into this, but uh, herpes yeah, virus keep it keep, keep it simple. Okay. Keep it simple. Basically, so lysine you... in, uh, interferes with herpes virus replication, supposedly, uh, and there are some people who swear by it. 
but their studies don't really support that. And there are some studies that show it actually worsens disease because of the stress of giving an animal, a cat, especially oral medications. But if you have a cat that loves these little treats, it's not going to hurt them to be on it at all. And you do have some people who just swear by it, even ophthalmologists. So if an animal comes in and they're on it and they're doing fine on it, sure. I don't really care, but I do not start any of them on it personally. Okay. okay. I think that's fair. I like the like, Neutral, neutral stance there at the end. <laughs> I will say, so lysine is, it is like a treat. Um, and my tip and trick for people in general practice is don't try to give it to the cat in the mouth. Um, cats don't like things on them. So I have owners actually dab it on like the cat's foot um, and the cat will lick it off because they don't want things on their fur. So they'll clean themselves and they'll take it in. So it's just a small dab of like a flavored, you know, I don't know, paste sort of. Okay. Um, but if you do that or you put it on their nose, they'll lick it off. Um, and then you're not trying to like rub it in their mouth. Yeah. So perfect. That's my, that's my GP <laughs> treat. Love it. Yeah. Trick. <laughs> okay. So that is definitely helpful. Um, in general, a lot of people had questions about ophthalmic exams and I'm just going to like out myself right now. Um, I know how to do kind of a direct exam, you know, uh, with, but when you start getting into fancy other things that shift and move and lights change and you're, I get lost. I sure. feel like I'm looking for what I need to look for. Um, I, because of working on horses, I do feel like I can look at the back of the eye pretty good. I can see if there's any darkness changes. Um, I can look at the cornea pretty well. But for us general practitioners, um, or even in the ER when things present, what are kind of your basic things that we should always do that you would expect us to kind of be thorough with? And are there any tricks to doing a better ophthalmic exam? Mm, good question. It's a lot. I know. It's a lot. <laughs> um, I feel like you can never, it's never wrong to do a Shermer stain and IOP on these patients that come in with a red eye. Because a red eye can literally be any of those three things. If you can rule out those, like you can rule out dry eye, rule out an ulcer, and rule out glaucoma, you've kind of ruled out the really scary things that can go bad very quickly. So then otherwise, the red eye is like, okay, hopefully this is something that we can kind of figure our way through without it being necessarily like an emergency. They're going to lose vision in 24 hours because we didn't diagnose glaucoma, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the ophthalmic exam, I have an order to it just to kind of help me, just like a, a regular physical. So I just start from the outside in uh, and just kind of work my way from how are they navigating to, you know, PLRs and um, what does the lids look like, conjunctiva, cornea, iris, lens, vitreous, and then the <laughs> retina. Um, and I do that every single time on every patient. So I can at least know that I've evaluated everything. Um, kind of tricks for, well, I mean, in, in general practice, you just don't have the type of magnification and the type of light source that I have that allows me to see these really subtle differences. Um, so I definitely don't expect vets to be like, there's a posterior subcortical incipient cataract, blah, 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 because there's just no way for you to know that. <laughs> and that's why you're just like, I think it has cataract, period, you know. So if I'm trying to assess for a cataract, it's really... Um, kind of how well can I see the tapetal reflection that's coming back at me to kind of gauge the density of that cataract? Is it immature because I can still see nice of tapetal reflection? Is it mature because I can't see any tapetal reflection? So it's kind of my main way to look at broadly a cataract. Um, for the my my standard is more 
are they blind or are they not blind? Sure. That's yeah. my statement. <laughs> like, can they still see or can they not see? That's the degree of cataracts that I yeah, and <laughs> judge. Cataract discussion, a whole other thing. But that's kind of the my main question to them as well, as far as trying to decide if we're doing surgery or not, is are they navigating well or are they not? Um, okay. So but that's a different You put it a topic. little more technical than <laughs> yeah. me, which is great. Um, <laughs> that's great. But as far as something kind of objective to try, well, it's objective too, if they can see or, or not, but. Um, another way. What about, you mentioned intraocular pressure, IOP, mm -hmm. um, and that requires a tono pin. So I will tell you, I bought my practice a year and a half ago um, and they didn't have a tono pin. And I'm like, we need this. Like this is, you know, <laughs> important. And I'm like, I'll just get one at the next conference. I'll, you know, grab one. Those things are expensive. They are. Um, and I, I've gotten that question too. <laughs> I was thinking like, oh, you know, a couple hundred bucks, maybe a thousand. I mean, they're thousands of dollars. Um, and if you really want the good ones that don't make you crazy while you're trying to actually get, uh, you know, a pressure on a patient that's awake and moving and doesn't want you to mess with them, it's really expensive. So one, do you have a tone of pen recommendation that's reasonable? And two, if you don't have a tone of pen, um, we had a question about how would you still check or could you still check intraocular pressure in any way? At Leah Tannaham wanted to know, is there a cheaper tool that we can use? So I thought that was an interesting question. Um, I guess the short answer to a cheaper option is probably not. Um, so before we had the type of chinometers we had uh, have now, people would use digital uh, assessment where they would literally push on the eyes to see if they are hard or not. <laughs> Um, that kind of gives you a, a rough idea, I would say, but it doesn't give you a number. And the number is actually the important part because that's what research goes off of to tell you, you know, what type of drops do they need? Do they need more aggressive therapy? Do they need an aqueosynthesis where we drain some fluid? Like, is this a true emergency type of thing? Um, <clears throat> I feel like the, I like the, I like the Tono, uh, Tono Vet. Uh, the Tonovet and then the Tonovet Plus. So those are two uh, rebound tonometers that actually shoot a little um, probe out to bounce off of the cornea versus directly touching the cornea with a tono pen. Uh, the risk of ulceration is less, and you don't have to use preparacaine um, to to numb the eye. Um, uh, so I do like that one more. Uh, I think. I found some used ones online uh, for about twenty five hundred dollars. <laughs> um, so. But uh, they, they definitely can be expensive, but it's also a tool that can potentially save the sight of one of your patients because I do get a lot of referrals to me for a red eye that's been treated with steroids um, without a pressure assessment. And it's been two weeks before they could come see me and that eye is completely blind because it ended up having glaucoma. And owners can be a little um, upset <laughs> Because they always ask me, is there yeah. anything we could have done to save this eye? And I was like, well, in the long run, no, because glaucoma will pretty much always cause blindness with time. Uh, but we could at least delay the onset of vision loss if we can catch it early. And that's where owners, I think, will pay for it. If you could say, hey, your dog is maybe a predisposed breed and it has uh, eye redness and corneal edema and, and medriasis, we need to check a pressure because I'm afraid it's glaucoma. So, um, and, and then they're usually like, well, if this could save my dog's vision, then let's do it. So it's kind of how you sell it to them too. I like that. That's a helpful communication tip. And then also I wrote down the tone of that plus because I need another tone of pen. Uh, and so I appreciate that. 
uh, information. And I do agree it is important. Now, in the ER, um, we see dogs and usually they have worse things, I would say. Like we don't see them for that like initial kind of redness issue or it's like the eyes like Huge. <laughs> bulging out of the head, right? <laughs> Not um, an emergency at that it, point. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, eh. Um, but I did, it, there's a couple things you touched on that I want to ask additional questions about. Um, one, you said you kind of see dogs and maybe they could have been referred earlier or the diagnosis could have been found earlier. And I actually had quite a few people ask, um, when should we refer things kind of directly to you? Um, are there certain things that if we see it, we should just say, you just need to go to ophthalmology now versus let's try A, B, and C. And obviously it's very dependent on like everything in vet med, financial constraints from owners, you know, expectations. Um, but I do think it is important for us to know like what emergency, eye emergencies are true emergencies and need to come to you quickly. And then what is maybe able to wait. And one of those I want to ask about is like a perforation of the cornea, mm -hmm. like a ruptured eyeball. So why don't you get into that a little bit for me? And let's see if we can help answer that question. Okay, perfect. So as far as like a true emergency, um, I think it, some of it depends on your comfort level with eyes and monitoring and making decisions that you feel confident about. So if you have an infected ulcer uh, and you're convinced that it is infected, there's stromal loss, infiltrates, uh, you're, and you are not comfortable with eyes, you should probably refer that more emergently so that it can be monitored by someone like me who is comfortable with that. Um, if you are comfortable with that, then you can manage that yourself. And maybe you, you know, if it starts not responding to medication, that's when you refer it. Uh, if you have something like a desmetaseal, um, used to be that desmetaseals were treated emergently. Uh, I tend to not do that. Um, <clears throat> I keep the animal calm and then hopefully get them in to see an ophthalmologist uh, soon after, as long as it is uh, the infection that caused that desmetaseal is under control. So again, it goes back to the infection. If you still think it's actively infected, then it should probably re be referred. Just for people listening who aren't vet professionals, desmetaseal would be what in layman's terms? It's the deepest ulcer you can have without the eye rupturing. And I see those a lot in the yes. ER. <laughs> Just just an offshoot, would you do topical and oral antibiotics in those? I, um, I only treat corneal uh, issues with topical therapy because that's going to be your highest concentration is achieved directly onto the eye. Okay. What about pain control? Do you do oral NSAIDs? Because uh, I've had some ophthalmologists say, and people, honestly, that have had ulcers say it's very painful. So what would be the, the you know, if I'm seeing it in the ER, it is, it's a, it's a basic ulcer, right? Like the groomer caught it. We're going to start treatment. Um, what pain control would you recommend on those guys? So unfortunately, our literature doesn't show that NSAIDs uh, really do much for corneal pain. Uh, no studies have been done with something like gabapentin to know about corneal sensation, uh, but I will use gabapentin just because technically it like theoretically should work because it's a nerve pain reliever and we're dealing with corneal nerves that are painful. Um, so I, I will opt for something like gabapentin because it also helps them stay sedated <laughs> uh, to help ease you know recovery and stuff like that. But um, my biggest when I when owners ask about pain control, uh, I will try to deal with secondary uveitis, like if they have um, um, reflex uveitis with meiosis with an ulcer. Put them on some atropine because that'll help with that muscle spasm, uh, and then otherwise gabapentin. But I usually don't opt for insets. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I like that. And it is, it's funny what a variety 
like you said, like specialists have with different things they do and what they use. So for people listening, if you've been to, you know, a veterinary ophthalmologist or your vet and they've done A, B, or C, and it's not exactly what we're saying, that's okay. It's everything based off experience and, you know, what you feel works and what you've studied and learned. And so there's really not, and with eyes, especially, I would say, there's not always an 100% way to do things. Correct. I like to go bad quickly. Eyes are really tough to treat, which is why, you know, people like you are so important. Um, So with the one that I brought up where they come in and it's actually a ruptured ulcer um, or trauma and, you know, the eyeball has ruptured, is that an emergency? Because I will say not everyone can either afford like the emergency nucleation right away or they want to try to save the eye if, you know, it still is round, I guess. So how emergent is that once you already have a hole in the eyeball? And I know that sounds very <laughs> grotesque in a way. Not for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. You're like, I love it. Send yeah. it to me. No. Yeah. Um, so what would be my degree of, I guess, like concern and recommendations for the owner time-wise on those? Sure. Uh, I think it depends on, uh, so if you have a trauma that's caused a rupture, um, it depends on the degree, the degree of trauma. Uh, so if you just have like a penetrating injury, then that may be less of an issue than if you have like, I crushed my eye and that's how it's like deflated or something, but, uh, that may be extreme. Um, so a routine kind of perforation. The biggest question I always have is, is the eye visual or not? So does it have a, and sometimes that's hard to know because they're really squinty, but we can at least try and get their eye open, shine a bright, I mean, the brightest light you possibly can find in that eye and see if they dazzle and see if they have a PLR in that eye. If you can't see a PLR, always assess the consensual PLR in the other eye. Because if they don't have a PLR in their other eye, the chances of a retinal detachment are very high in that perforated eye. And then it may not be worth expensive surgery to fix the cornea. Um, If there's a ton of blood associated with this rupture, that is also not a great prognostic indicator. If there's a lot of tissue coming out of the eye, like iris tissue, that's also not super great um but i have seen some not of, ideal not ideal not ideal <laughs> but i always assess for that consensual plr <clears throat> um so if it's a reasonably sized perforation that is sealed uh which means the eyes decompress the eye has plugged itself up with fibrin <clears throat> then those eyes maybe can wait um to to see someone as long as that eye is relatively stable they go on oral antibiotics minimal topical therapy because we don't want to stress this animal out by opening their eye all the time. So if it's perforated three to four times a day for your topical med, and then your twice a day oral antibiotic, and then pain medication like an NSAID and stuff, because those are painful uh, on the inside of the eye, uh, and then kind of send them in. Uh, I will usually wait on a perforation as long as it is sealed. If the owners don't want to go for the surgery, especially on an emergency basis, it gets very expensive. Um, so we'll give it like a week to see if it's getting any better. And if it's not, then we can still opt for surgery. Um, or we can continue with medical therapy if it's improving because the eye has ways to heal itself. Yeah. And I've seen that and it's been crazy to me and probably more with like rescues where they're kind of like, we probably need to do surgery on this, but financially, you know, and we'll do all the orals, we'll put a cone on it and we'll see what happens. And a lot of those eyes will heal, especially cats. Like cats are cats crazy are, good healers. I let me start to do a sidebar, but I had this crazy case that this cat had like run outside 
come back and literally half of its iris was on its cheek and it came in, it was supposed to come and see me and the owner, um, I had gotten all these pictures. The owner couldn't find the cat or it had like hidden and it couldn't come in for surgery. So we were like, if you, if you can't find the cat and you can't treat the cat, you probably shouldn't do surgery. Just remove the eye. But she sent me a picture three days later and it had already started to pull the iris back into the eye. And then like a week later, it was completely healed and the eye was visual. And I was like, cats are amazing. They do amazing things. <laughs> Even if you, I would always give a cat eye a chance. <laughs> yes. Cats are incredible. You know, the joke is like, if their leg falls off, just set it next to them yeah. and it'll like <laughs> reattach itself, which is a very emergency yeah. joke, but they really are incredible healers. And I agree. I'll have these young, young kittens that get really bad ulcers um, and severe and we'll treat them and we'll give them time. And like those eyes will definitely heal over yeah. time. So uh, cats and dogs are definitely very different, which yeah. makes our jobs <laughs> interesting in general. Um, so let's, you touched on a nucleation or surgery, uh, just a little bit. Um, I will tell you nucleations are one of my favorite surgeries to do. Me too, uh, which is probably not good for me as an ophthalmologist. <laughs> you want to say, you're saving the eyes. I, I take them out. Um, but I do think there's a couple good points to make to owners. Um, one, your dog or cat often doesn't care if they only have one eye. Um, so it's a cosmetic thing. A lot of people are like, <gasps> about taking on an eye, but if you're doing it, it's because it's painful or it's popped out of the socket or they're not visual and your, your pet is in more pain because of that, in my opinion, um, nucleation is definitely warranted. Um, but we did have a ax axio ask, um, when do we perform an enucleation? Um, if it's not obvious, I really struggle with like when to pull the trigger on that. So mm. do you have any kind of hard and fast rules on when you do an enucleation or is it related to the pain of the patient? Is it finance related? Where do you lay with all that? Uh, I think a lot of it does depend on the client and what they're willing to do. So if we have a perforation that is that they don't want to do any type of surgery right now, then I would at least allow that eye about a week's time to see if it's going to either reseal or if it's going to start to heal uh, or both. Uh, if it is not getting better within a, uh, after about a week, that eye probably needs to be removed if we're not going to do a graft of some kind. Uh, if we have a blind, painful eye uh, that is not going to get better, like a glaucoma eye that's not responding to anything, or we have a big rupture in a glaucoma eye that's blind, uh, then eye removal also is warranted there. Because uh, I totally agree that um, your animal doesn't really care uh, if that eye is there, once, especially once they lose vision. Because my phrasing is, or kind of what I say is, the only way your animal knows that that eye exists right now is if it hurts. So the only thing eye removal is going to do for them is remove that pain. They're, they're already used to not being able to see out of that eye, so it's not going to be a big shift for them. Um, it is a lot of anthropomorphizing on our, our end. <laughs> no, but I, I do think that's something that's important that people need sometimes. Um, and I also tell people dogs are highly adaptable. Um, so even pets that like, because if they got glaucoma in one eye, they certainly could get it in the other. So I've seen pets, you know, have both eyes gone um, or just go blind because of like sudden retinal detachment or something. And they do really well. Like mm -hmm. as long as they're in their home and the place that they're used to, they have so many of their senses that they still get around really well. And there's some dogs 
you wouldn't even know they were blind or didn't have eyes, you know, based on how they act. So I do think that's a good point for pet owners to know is enucleation is definitely not the end of the world for your pet. Um, and we're only going to recommend it if we really, really believe that is the next best step for them. So, yeah. um, speaking of sight, so I had a couple, um, pet owners ask about cataracts. Um, and so Archie Palm wanted to know, is there any cataract dissolving eye drops? And I have seen supplements and things out there that claim that they might help with cataracts. So let's just go to the expert. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, there are no drops that dissolve cataracts. Because um, if there were, humans would be on them. And cataract surgery would not be one of the top ophthalmic surgery done uh, for humans. Uh, so the answer is no. <laughs> um, there are some ophthalmologists that think that there are some supplements that can maybe slow the progression of cataracts. Um, but I would probably say the research behind that is minimal and kind of limited to maybe like a paper, one, maybe one paper uh, that indicates something like that. So in the end, cataracts usually do whatever they want. So some progress, some don't. It all depends on the cataract. <laughs> uh, and the only way to really get rid of them once they become, once the animal is affected by them is to surgically remove them. Yeah. And that surgery is fairly routine. They do pretty well with that. Um, they can. In, in my experience, what is your, what is your thoughts on that? Uh, so kind of the percentages that I quote when I am talking about cataract surgery is that 85 to 95% of these patients are still visual a year later, and 80% of them are still visual two years later. So it definitely has a higher complication rate than humans, for sure. Uh, but that's because dog eyes especially do not tolerate uh, that. They're a lot more sensitive. So they have a ton more inflammation after surgery, which can lead to complications like glaucoma, uh, which can, of course, take their vision away. Uh, so that is one reason why I will recommend surgery on patients who are already blind, basically, from their cataracts. Because if the worst case scenario happens and they lose their vision from a complication, they at least kind of go back to their status quo versus taking a, an eye that's minimally affected. Uh, and that dog is visual. I don't want to blind that patient with a potential complication. Uh, okay. Yeah. I think uh, that's fair. Mm -hmm. I'm shocked how many owners are actually willing to go do cataract surgery on their pets. Not to say it's not worth it, um, but I don't think it's something that people know is an option a lot of times. And then when you say like, well, there's actually, they're like, what? Um, and in my area, it's actually not as expensive as a lot of people thought it was going to be. Um, not that it's cheap, um, right. but it does <laughs> seem like something that is attainable. Um, but it's not a, you know, $10,000 orthopedic surgery in our area. Good. So, uh, in your area, it's not $10,000. <laughs> yeah, in Texas, in our area. Um, but I do think it's worth having the conversation, right? And being aware that it is an option uh, because a lot of pet owners don't know about the extent of care we can do for, for pet patients. And so it's our job to educate them and to offer them really everything that's available um, for them. So I, I like talking about those things because I always get comments like, you could do cataract surgery on dogs? What? Yeah. <laughs> um, and your account on Instagram is great too because you show a lot of different procedures that can be done at a high level, um, which is really, really important. So, okay, we only have a couple more questions. Are you oh, doing yeah. okay? Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> 
You're doing great. I'm loving this. Um, so at Rebecca Joy Music wanted to know, why are humans and dogs prescribed the same medications in ophthalmology? Oh, I've never gotten that question before, but um, I would say probably multifactorial. Um, in general, the eyes between dogs and humans and cats and humans are relatively similar as far as the different receptors that they have, like how they respond to medications. And of course, human eyes are prioritized over animal eyes. And so most of our drug research is all done in, well, I guess I would say in like lab settings and rabbits and whatnot, and then kind of progresses on into humans. Um, and it's cheaper for the veterinary medicine probably to use these products that are already generic options uh, for humans than to have veterinary specific medications because that's where the cost really goes up. Yeah, I think that that is a, a big point is just the research that goes into animal specific medications versus human is very different. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm glad there's so many things available to us. The cost of some of these drops uh, when you're getting into higher level treatments can be pretty significant. Um, but I do have people use like GoodRx and different options to try to find like the most reasonable thing that they can. Um, but, you know, we also struggle with how expensive these things can be um, and how available they are depending on what's going on in the human world. Yep. Um, but I am glad that there's so many options for us, you know, if we really can look around and, and do the work, I guess, in sure. general. So. Um, okay, so just two more questions. Um, at Nitmo wanted to know what happens when a dog damages their nictating membrane, like oh. from a cat claw. And I had a couple of questions uh, about that. So explain what the nictating membrane is. Um, and I would say like a cat claw or injury from another pet is one of the more common things I see. Um, but what it what happens with that? So the nictating membrane is also called the third eyelid. And uh, humans have one too. It's just a little that vestigial little pink dot in the corner of your eye. Um, but that's basically a protective mechanism for the eye. Um, it comes up passively when the eye is kind of um, sucked back into the eye socket from pain or reaction of some kind. Or when they're asleep, you may see that third eyelid pop up. Uh, that's not a, an issue, so don't, don't be worried about that. Um, but it also helps distribute the tear film and it helps to um, clear debris from the eye. There's also uh, immune tissue in that third eyelid that kind of helps support the local immunity for, for the eye or the local immune system for the eye. So when it's damaged, uh, ideally, oh, it also houses a major gland for tear production as well. Uh, so when that third eyelid is damaged, it depends on the degree of damage. Um, so a small little tear in the kind of leading edge of that third eyelid, I pretty much just trim that excess tissue off um, and just leave it alone after that. Uh, if it is a full thickness, like large laceration, then I do think that those should be surgically repaired. Um, there is a, a sheet of cartilage that's in the third eyelid. And that cartilage, if it is exposed, can actually rub on the cornea and create ulcers and discomfort. Uh, so we want to make sure that cartilage is not exposed. Um, it's a very thin little sheet, so you kind of have to palpate for it. And sometimes you can see it. It's like a little pinky white tissue that's there. Um, but if that's exposed, then I think it, it needs to be fixed kind of whether or not it's a huge thing or not. And that conjunctival tissue heals quickly. So, Well, and that's when you have to get out like the, the six-aught yeah, suture. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> six-aught. Y'all, the suture that... The suture used in ophthalmology, like I feel so old when I use it because it's <laughs> literally, it's like, it's like a piece of hair is what it feels like when you're doing like a third eyelid, um, like a prolapse or you're doing something. Um, and I'm surprised we didn't get questions about, uh, 
a third eyelid, like prolapse or a cherry eye. Cherry eye. Um, <clears throat> so I have one question about that. This is, this is from at Dr. Tanaja Crocker. Um, <laughs> I would love to know what is the true success rate on prolapse cherry eyes mm. in bulldogs and uh. patients that are like that? Because my experience has been, it is lower. And I've heard that from ophthalmologists also. So Little little client's education on expectations with that would be awesome. Great. Uh, yes. So bulldogs do have bulldogs and similar breeds. Uh, so I would say bulldogs and then you have your giant um, like mastiffs, uh, Great Danes, uh, those types, uh, King Corsos, uh, those breeds can all have a lower success rate. Um, in our literature, we say up to a 30% failure rate in those dogs that's i think particularly using a morgan pocket technique to do that surgery uh with those dogs i kind of give owners the option of doing a morgan pocket by me as an ophthalmologist mm -hmm. who does it a lot uh versus uh someone who doesn't do it as often and then i still kind of say maybe up to a 30 percent complication rate with a morgan pocket but how many have I had, knock on wood, I hope I don't jinx myself. How many have I had come out from that's a bulldog or something is, I, I don't actually know because I, I don't remember any. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> you know, look at knock that. Knock on wood, knock on wood. I love it. Um, no, no, no. I think that's a great <laughs> point because I tell people like, you know, I, I do this surgery fairly routinely, not as much as an ophthalmologist would, but certain breeds, I'm like, you really should go to the ophthalmologist. Kind of one of the reasons to come to me and maybe pay a little bit more is hopefully you're doing it once. Once. Even though yes. it's more expensive, you're doing it one time. So hopefully overall it's less expensive. Um, if I'm really concerned about uh, a success rate with a Morgan pocket technique, then that's actually where I do a different technique that's newer, like 2012, 2013 is when the paper came out, uh, where it's actually a ventral rectus tap. And that's where you actually suture the gland to your ventral rectus muscle that sits under the eye. So that's a little bit more invasive, but that paper had over a hundred dogs or had 800 dogs in it, and it didn't have any recurrence rates um, with, with that surgery. So I will opt for that in those more problematic breeds, depending on what the owner kind of opts to do. Because it's definitely faster to do a Morgan pocket. I mean, being older uh in this i would just tell like gp vets like set yourself up for success and just refer those breeds <laughs> for the cherry because they even stink um, for me to do you know? <laughs> so. yeah like, it, it's just one of those things i don't care how confident you are in it like 30 percent is a very high surgical failure rate and that is with you know a, people that do it a fair amount so mm -hmm. um it, it, even when you set client expectations, it still is a surprise when it doesn't work, you know, to people. So just refer them. That's my, that's my two cents. Like just refer those Terry eyes to y'all and let you handle it. And I, okay. can I say one thing about that too? Yeah. You can say whatever. Just for what like, for, I guess for primary vets and then for our owners too, if a gland pops back out within the first week or so, then it is probably a suture problem that has ruptured, like more of a technique or something as well that maybe has failed. Uh, if it has popped out beyond that, like say two week period where everything should be healed, then we're probably dealing with the dog's factors uh, being the issue. So especially a Morgan pocket technique, you're creating just a line of scar where that gland can't come up. But if you have a bulldog or a King Corso, they have so much extra conjunctival tissue that it, in my mind, it just goes whoop and goes around that scarred area. 
so that may be more of a dog factor if it's beyond two weeks versus a technical factor if it's before that. I, I like that. I mean, I will... I'll accept that feedback and maybe I've had some early, maybe I've had some late. So we just, we just won't go there. Well, that's also like, did they rub, you know, are they being, yeah. are they turned oh, yeah. out to they go always... fetch a toy the next day? You know, cause these sutures are very small. That tissue is very thin. It is very easy for it to pop one of the things to break and then the gland comes right back out. So uh, I don't mean for it to be like a doctor factor, but just like anyway, technical factor. It's fine. <laughs> It's called practicing because we're not, none of us are perfect. And so <laughs> I just have to embrace that. So, okay. Final question. I think this is a good one to end on. Um, at Disabled DVM wanted to know what is your best research resource or book uh, for doctors to have on hand uh, when they're dealing with eye stuff? So she's an emergency intern right now. Um, but in general, do you have like a go-to book that you think is best resource makes maybe dumbs it down a little bit for yeah. us. Uh, it's good to search. What would, it, what would it be? There is a pared down version of our ophthalmology Bible, which is called Gelat, Veterinary Ophthalmology. And uh, Gelat has created an essentials of veterinary ophthalmology that is a paperback um, pared down version of this huge two volume set. Uh, and it kind of includes, you know, maybe if you're interested in eyes, but don't are, are going into full veterinary ophthalmology. It's kind of a good resource just to give you a little bit more detail than you're probably used to, uh, but not like the full-fledged explanations of everything. Uh, but it's called Essentials of Veterinary Ophthalmology. There's also um, an author, uh, Slatters. Uh, I think it's an... If you Google like Slatter, S-L-A-T-T-E-R, apostrophe S, and then there's veterinary ophthalmology and there's a surgery book as well that has great pictures in there. Uh, those are kind of the two main ones, I would say. Uh, as far as like an emergency text that you can look at, there probably isn't like a published one that I know of. Um, granted, I probably, I don't have, <laughs> in my training and stuff, we didn't really have that available to us because we had to know all the complicated stuff. So I, I could definitely be missing something that's out there. Um, I just haven't had to go look for it. So uh, No, those are... <clears throat> Those are good resources. And I would also say a good resource is having a relationship with an ophthalmologist. Totally. Um, I definitely have ones that I can send pictures to. We actually, one of the local referral clinics has a great text message thread. You can send them case information, pictures. They'll say like, okay, put them on these things. Yes, we need to see them next week. Or, you know, like they give really good information, almost like a consultation. Um, but I think forming relationships with specialists who are more practiced in these areas um, is really helpful mm -hmm. as a general practitioner and as an ER doctor. So um, that is it. You survived. How do you did feel it. about it? Oh, we can keep it going. Was... <laughs> <laughs> it was great. And, and I do think if people want more great information and pictures and videos, your social media account uh, is wonderful. And you do a really good job of explaining things and giving us the visual, which I think is important with this type of subject. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely follow him um, on social media. And then if you guys have any questions for us uh, about follow-up, uh, you can reach out on social media accounts at questions with Crocker at the vet eye guy. Um, I'm also on uh, Facebook, which is old. You're probably not, but that's okay. <laughs> 
Um, and you can watch us on YouTube uh, if you want to see us laugh and do air quotes. So um, we appreciate any reviews. Do you have any final words of advice? Do you have any final things, uh, pearls of wisdom you want to leave us with? I would say for your general practitioners, practice, practice, practice when it comes to self exams, because that's the only way you're going to feel more comfortable about identifying abnormal versus normal. So practice, practice, even if they don't need a funding exam, do it. Uh, so you can start to solidify what is normal in your brain. Uh, and then for owners, just follow instructions. <laughs> I mean, that is the best <laughs> advice we can give anyone. Uh, that's wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with me today, Dr. Sigmund. Thank and thank you guys for listening and have a great day.